Do you want the court, including the justices that you will name, to overturn Roe v. Wade, which includes, in fact states, a woman's right to abortion? Well, if that would happen, because I am pro-life and I will be appointing pro-life judges, I would think that that will go back to the individual states. But I'm asking you specifically, would you if like to... If they overturned it, it'll go back to the states. But what I'm asking you, sir, is... Do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be... Ha that will happen. Secretary Clinton? Well, I, I strongly support Roe v. Wade, which guarantees a constitutional right to a woman to make the most intimate, most difficult, in many cases, decisions about her health care that uh, one can imagine. Few issues are as emotionally charged and politically fraught as abortion. A woman's reproductive freedom versus a fetus's right to life divides societies like few other issues. In ancient Greece, Plato and Aristotle argued that abortion was permissible under some circumstances, while the physician Hippocrates famously took the opposite view. Today, abortion informs political parties' platforms, inspires violence, alienates neighbors, and splits families. But as my guest today argues, if abortion is polarizing, it is also something else. It is common. Like it or not, abortion occurs in every country and within every socioeconomic class. For Francois Girard, president of the International Women's Health Coalition, the sooner we recognize that abortion is a fact of life, the better off every woman will be. Hi, Francois. Thanks for joining us today on this edition of PS Editor's Podcast. Hello, Greg. It's my pleasure to be talking to you. Well, it's our pleasure as well, and we have lots to cover in this conversation, so let's dive right into it if we could. Now, you often write for Project Syndicate and others about women's health issues, but I want to spend our time today talking about one issue, and that's abortion. Now, in your most recent PS commentary, you wrote that, quote, abortion is a fact of life. Now, needless to say, there are many people in the world, around the world, who will disagree with you on that. So I want to start by asking you to explain, what do you mean by abortion is an unavoidable part of life? Well, it's not my opinion. It's, it's based on evidence and facts. Uh, the World Health Organization estimates that at least 56 million abortions are performed every year around the world. So obviously it's a very common medical procedure and it's a, a very common event in women's lives. And if you look at the United States, for example, the latest statistics are that one in every five American women will have an abortion before the age of 40. So uh, it is not a rare event. It is actually a very common event in women's lives. And that's why I say it's a fact of life. Mm, wow, I mean those those statistics that you just that you just cited are are pretty staggering and clearly paint to the to the idea or, or or the point you're making that abortion is common, but the need is clearly not evenly distributed around the world. Another figure that you quoted in your piece was that 88 percent of all abortions are actually in developing countries, and many of these occur in countries where abortion is illegal meaning that oftentimes, up to 45%, I think you wrote, abortions are what the World Health Organization would consider unsafe. Why is it that rates of abortion are highest in countries where abortion is criminalized? And 
the corollary being lowest in countries where it's legal. Yeah, that's often, uh, when I say that to people, they're often surprised by it because it seems counterintuitive. That's because, and I think we need to unpack a little bit what uh, what the beliefs are behind this. One, one belief people have is that if you criminalize abortion, you will reduce the number of abortions. But that's not, in fact, what happens when you criminalize abortion. You don't reduce the numbers at all, You but you make abortion more dangerous because women have to turn to clandestine providers who are often uh, operating in, you know, with criminal rings, uh, with, with unsanitary facilities, and who don't have the skills to, to help women safely. So that's one aspect. You know, it doesn't reduce, it makes it more dangerous. And the, the, the opposite is true, which is that in countries that have liberalized abortion laws, what you see is a reduction in the stigma surrounding abortion and generally surrounding information and services about sexual and reproductive health. So that's usually accompanied liberalization of abortion with greater access to contraception, to information about sexuality, so that women are in fact able to prevent pregnancy and not have uh, to have recourse to abortion. So in countries such as, you know, Western Europe, um, in, in North America, where abortion is generally accessible and legal, you also see uh, lower numbers of abortion. Hmm. Well, there's a lot in there uh, to, to kind of continue to discuss and to examine. But I want to start by going back, back in time, way back, actually. And one of the, the points that you made in your piece uh, dealt with the historical aspects of abortion. You wrote, and I quote, While the methods varied, abortion was a normal and often accepted practice in ancient China, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. And it was only in the 19th century that Catholic and colonial elites propagated anti-abortion laws to control women's sexuality, bodies, and lives. Why, in your view, does abortion remain beyond the pale in so many countries generations after it was legalized? Um, Well, I think it's my point is rather different, which it is that for a long time, uh, abortion was performed in traditional societies by women who were the, you know, the, what they call them, angel makers, you know, the, the, uh, the women who would perform these services for other women. And it was not always safe, but it certainly was accepted and it was part of life in, in those traditional communities. Then in the 19th century, what we see is the rise of these anti-abortion laws and of the the medical establishment, um, in some cases, claiming the procedure and criminal laws, then regulating that, and the the, the debate between the criminal uh, law and the medical establishment as to who should perform and whether or not it was acceptable to perform. That's actually a recent phenomenon. So it's really 19th century that we see that. And those laws, which you know uh, were passed in Britain and in France, were then exported to Africa and Asia and Latin America through uh, colonialism. So it, 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 these are not indigenous local ideas. These were really exported through the colonial enterprise. Uh, one of the things that in your quote that, that I read that kind of uh, struck me in, the, in preparation for our podcast today... And I was struck to see and to learn that this debate goes all the way back to ancient Greece. You know, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle conceptualized and understood that under certain circumstances, abortion was necessary. Uh, And physicians like 
Hippocrates, uh, whose Hippocratic Oath actually forbade abortion, uh, suggests that you know, these were conversations and debates that, that are as old as time itself, just about. Yes, yes. Indeed they are. And if you look in ancient Egypt, you, you see on hieroglyphs uh, what appears to be depiction of uh, termination of pregnancy. Hmm. And so I guess that brings me to the question uh, you know, at hand. Your point is that women in search of an abortion who need abortions will pursue them whether they're legal or not. And so the debate is really about making them safe. But I guess, you know, given all the baggage and all the historical conversation we've had on this, how do you think it will ever really be possible to normalize abortion? Well, I think it's really up for women to speak about their experiences. We're seeing that increasingly, you know, whereas women, one of the main uh, discussions amongst women uh, about this issue is how we stop the stigma. Because since women will continue to seek those services, because women understand the impact of motherhood, obviously, and what it, what it takes to bring a child into the world, to raise that child, to bring them to adulthood, to support them. It, it is a huge responsibility. And so women are intimately convinced that motherhood should be voluntary and that they shouldn't be forced uh, motherhood. Like th that mm. makes no sense. It's not good for anybody. So women will continue to seek those procedures and therefore no longer want to be shamed and stigmatized for it. That will require, I think we're coming to terms with that, speaking about our experiences, speaking about the reasons and the life circumstances that have made those decisions necessary for us and not feeling that we have to apologize for what is actually very responsible choice. I mean, it's the epitome of responsibility to really right. look at your own circumstances and decide whether or not you can proceed with something as important as hmm. having a child. Yeah. Uh, my name's Melanie. My name's Alyssa. And I had an abortion when I was 24. When I was 18, I had an abortion. I, basically, I was college-bound and um, not interested in having children. Um, so I knew it was the right decision because I didn't want to be... Uh, I didn't want to be a single mom at 17. I knew exactly what I wanted. I mean, it seems to me that one of, you know, the first step in, in the process is securing some degree uh, of, of legal protection for the service. And then the, then the real hard work comes. I mean, we look at the case of South Africa, you know, where abortion has been legally protected for two decades, since 1996, more than two decades. Uh, you know, and yet to, to this day, illegal abortions are still incredibly common in South Africa. Largely, it seems, because some women, 30% or so, don't actually know that abortion is legal. And then uh, another uh, surprising figure to me, 5% of public hospitals and clinics, or I'm sorry, only 5% of public hospitals and clinics offer the service. Uh, what lessons are there for those to kind of avoid the similar situation that South Africa finds itself in, this perpetual inability to access a legal service? Yeah, it really speaks to what I was just talking about, the stigma which remains pervasive. And, you know, there are the influences of churches that continue to, you know, have the same message about uh, abortion being a sin and so on. So 
you have a lot of very powerful forces at the community level continuing to stigmatize uh, the procedure and shame women and and keep uh, things under you know the cone of silence if you want so unless the government is prepared to invest in information uh, public awareness raising and you know really training and investing in the services that's the result if you just leave things you know like that without investment that's the, re the result you have right and the same is true in another country uh, w w which legalized abortion a long time ago India uh, in India legalized it in the 1970s and we have the same phenomenon again because of you know lack of investment and like of uh, support for women to actually be able to to realize their reproductive intentions after over 15 hours of debate the vote was called just before three in the morning it did come close 38 against 31 but rejected where does that leave women now in Argentina but what about a country like Argentina, which came very, very close recently to legalization and yet fell, fell short? How does a country like Argentina and advocates in Argentina maintain the momentum? Yes, they're, they're very mobilized, you know, and so they, the vote uh, was lost very narrowly in the Senate this summer. Only seven votes um, were missing. So it was extremely close. And, you know, the, the lower house of parliament passed it. So... Uh, they're going to be back. Eh? They're going to be back next year uh, with with the bill. In the meantime, they're continuing the fight to expand access within the existing law. So what's interesting is that under the current law in, in Argentina, abortion is allowed to preserve, safeguard the health of the woman. And in certain provinces, guidelines have been published that allow pro providers to actually uh, deliver services in the public health system under the, the health exception, as, as you would call it. And when that's happened in some of these provinces, you've really had, you know, good service delivery, safe services, and women are coming forward. So they're continuing to push for that as the, at the same time as they're going to come back for, for decriminalization. Is this a chicken and an egg thing? Does, does one have to come before the other cultural change versus legal change, or do they happen simultaneously? In... If we, when you look at various countries, in my experience, it kind of it kind of is, is a seesaw, right? You have some cultural change, some conversation, some public awareness, and then you know some more willingness of decision makers to move the needle and so on. Sometimes you have a court decision that opens the debate. Uh, you know, it, there's not a single path. Uh, it's often a combination of factors, but. Without uh, mobilization of women's rights organizations, I haven't seen the, the full um, realization of rights uh, ever materialize. In other words, you might be able to change the law, you know, with a small group of doctors, let's say, pushing for it, as, as happened uh, in India in the 70s. But uh, unless you have continual pressure from civil society and from women's rights organizations, you don't have the full you know, package of, of uh, services available, the good quality care, the, the budgets voted and so on, the training of providers continuing. Uh, and, that, and I think that's, that speaks to the importance of the women's movement in all of this, as we saw in Ireland, for example.
Now, your organization has written about the next frontier in the struggle for abortion rights. Uh, and to your organization, that's the issue of provider choice. Now, by your count, some 70 jurisdictions worldwide, and including, somewhat shockingly, I thought, 45 U.S. states, allow healthcare providers to deny abortions to patients based on doctors' personal beliefs. You've called this unconscionable. Explain to us why this is so problematic. Well, imagine you have an emergency room doctor that says, uh, sorry, but my personal beliefs prevent me from um, performing blood transfusions. Would you consider that acceptable for an emergency room physician? Of course not. Of course not. So... What what we need to look at is the responsibility that doctors take on when they profess the oath, you know, of to become a, a physician. You you are granted a monopoly. You know, no one else can be a doctor but a certain class of people who've gone through the training and then um, profess the oath. So that monopoly comes with, of course, privileges but also obligations. If you choose. Uh, to become an OBGYN, you know, obstetrician, gynecologist, there's a number of things that you are expected to do. And one of them is provide abortion care when women need it. And so we feel it is unconscionable and a dereliction of professional duty for people who have chosen that specific specialization to refuse to provide uh, essential care within the ambit of that specialization. We're not saying they can't practice medicines. There's plenty of other disciplines in medicine that don't require you to perform an abortion. But if you're going to be, let's say, an obstetrician, you should, you should be willing to do this. Um, so that's what we're saying, because otherwise what it leads to is refusals of care and women turned away from critical care that they need at, at times often when they're you know, in dire circumstances. Or, and these are often women who don't have other resources. These are often women who don't have easily, you know, the means, financial means, don't have easy access to transport, are young women who don't know where else to turn, don't have support uh, socially or in their community to, to obtain that care. Uh, they're often women who experience discrimination on other grounds. They're women of color, indigenous women, so on. That's the experience that, that we've documented. And so for doctors who are actually very privileged people in our societies to refuse to provide the care is, in our view, uh, yes, unconscionable. Yeah, to say the least. Now, I want to end on one more difficult situation, uh, and that's the situation in the U.S. regarding Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court and the future of that decision. Now, we're talking in early October, so we really have no way of reading crystal ball and, and determine uh, what's going to become of Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. But regardless of what happens to Mr. Kavanaugh, it's fair to say that the fundamental decision, uh, the very important decision, Roe v. Wade, which in 1973 recognized the constitutional right to abortion, could be reversed or at least reconsidered in coming years. I wonder what that scenario would mean for women, not only in the U.S., but around the world? It would be extremely significant. I think uh, we underestimate sometimes in the U.S. how much the rest of the world looks at what goes on in the United States. Uh, you know, women from all over the world who I'm in touch with, you know, because we work with them, have been riveted by, by the hearings and, and the unfolding uh, nomination process. So the U.S., of course, matters a great deal uh, for 
women around the world who look to the U.S. as a, a symbol of, you know, advancement in human rights. Uh, so this would be, of course, very disheartening and, and damaging. Of course, it would also be very difficult for women in the United States themselves because, obviously, if Roe v. Wade was overturned, we'd have to turn to the states. Now, each individual state uh, in the U.S. controls criminal law, and so we'd have to look at what the law in each state says to, to know what the rights of women are overnight. Mm. I mean, and when we're talking about this provider choice issue uh, as being a law in 45 U.S. states, that's, that, that doesn't speak very highly of states' ability to maintain the right uh, that is currently provided to women in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, there's been, there's been um, a strategy of, of uh, the, force, the powerful forces and well-funded forces that oppose abortion to uh, chip away at, at abortion rights at the state level, you know, using that uh, strategy. And uh, they have pushed through hundreds of restrictions at state level over the last 10 years. Uh, th- it's been well documented. And one of them has been refusals of care, but there have been other restrictions, some of which the Supreme Court of the United States recently found to be un- unconstitutional, so, such as the, you know, the famous trap laws, you know, targeted restrictions aimed at uh, abortion providers. Uh, th- that's been found to be unconstitutional. But, you know, there, there's more coming down the pike, clearly. So I want to end by taking this kind of big legal conversation and boiling it down to what everyday individuals at the grassroots level can do to help ensure that these services remain accessible. Uh, So what can individuals who are concerned about this topic do uh, to maintain coverage uh, and availability of abortion in the United States and other countries? Well, get involved. You know, be involved in the discussion at your community level, you need to vote for people who will be supportive of abortion rights. You need to talk to your legislator. You need to be involved, obviously, at community level. You know, what we just heard, it, it, it's not, you can't just wait for the Supreme Court to go one way or the other. You need to be very involved with your state officials. You, we need to write about it. We need to talk about it. I think women need to tell their stories so that people understand the scope and the ambit of this and how many women will be affected. We need to support also women's rights organizations who are carrying out the fight, you know, at at the legislative level and who are mobilizing the forces that want to retain this really important health service and make it available for women in the future. Hmm. Well, I think that's an important and upbeat place to end a very serious discussion. So thank you very much for your contribution and time today, Francois. It was a pleasure, and I know our listeners will appreciate it very much. Thanks for your time, Greg. That was Francois Girard, president of the International Women's Health Coalition. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.